What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. We have reason to believe that man first walked upright to free his, or her, or their, hands for masturbation, Lily Tomlin. I think Lily has a point. What do you think? Should masturbation rank up there with bubble baths and rest for self-care? Why is lube important? And what are the very best accessories for the bedroom? I'm so excited to explore these topics and more today with Dr. Shannon Chavez, a licensed clinical psychologist and ASECT certified sex therapist with a private practice called SHAPE, Sexual Health and Pleasure Enhancement Center, SHAPE Center, in Beverly Hills, where she provides individual and couples therapy, sex and relationship coaching, and workshops on sexual health. She's brought her expertise here to Girl Boner before. In an episode you may remember on mind-body sexuality, it was all about her holistic approach. And in my recent live episode at a Skirt Club event here in Los Angeles, she's also featured in my Girl Boner book in the Religion and Spirituality chapter. So obviously I'm a huge fan and thrilled to have her back today. Before we dive in, a huge sponsor shout out to The Pleasure Chest. I'm pretty sure you're going to get a lot of ideas for fun bedroom goodies today. You can find most or maybe even all of them at The Pleasure Chest. They have physical locations in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, or shop online at thepleasurechest.com. Recently, a listener shared with me that she picked up her first vibrator ever at the LA store, which made me so happy. Again, thepleasurechest.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Shannon. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to see you and be here again. Yeah. So last time we connected, we were at a very swanky event for the Skirt Club. What was your impression? I loved the ambiance of the Skirt Club. First of all, everyone looked beautiful. It was very sensual. The lighting, the location, the music. I thought it was amazing. and Everyone was so engaged, so excited, and I feel like we gave them some good information. We did. You were such a good host. We kind of turned the tables where you asked me questions, and I felt like I walked onto your talk show set. You were so... (laughs) We didn't, like, practice or anything. You just snapped into this, like, I'm here and I'm doing it, and, and it was very personal. It felt personal, and I felt like the audience was so attentive. They asked really great questions. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So thank you again for for doing that. It was great. I hope to see them again. It's a great organization and what they do. So they put on some pretty sexy events for anyone out there. Exactly. Exactly. So I would love to talk about masturbation. Yay, my favorite topic. Isn't it a great one? (laughs) It really is. Have you always been passionate about masturbation? Do you remember a time in your life when it became kind of more important? You know, as a former Catholic girl, it always fascinated me because I knew it was a bad thing. And I grew up being very curious about why this word called masturbation is so naughty. And in my practice as a sex therapist, I always make sure it's the core foundation of all my work. I want people to be able to pleasure their own bodies and understand how their body works and to spend the time and not think of it as a dirty word, but something that really helps us with wellness. 
Yeah, absolutely. For somebody who's brand new, one, one of the questions I've been getting recently, which I love, is how do I get started? And one of the reasons I love that question is because I didn't start masturbating until age 30. I shared that in a podcast on Kelsey Derrick's um, Confidently Insecure, which is a really fun show. She's amazing. And I heard from a bunch of people who said, oh, my gosh, me too. Like, I, I didn't know that there were other people who didn't do this. And if you've never done it before and you're not quite sure where to start, what is one tip that you might provide? Yes, that's a great question. I think the first tip is to explore your anatomy first. And that may start with getting naked, looking at your nude body, being open to exploring. And by exploring, I mean really touch things, move things around, see how things work, how they, how they look, become embodied and connected to your anatomy. So then masturbation doesn't seem like an obscure thing, but then you can say, all right, now I want to explore where to touch and how to touch. And use your hands. You don't need a fancy vibrator to masturbate. It can start with sensual touch, massage, just really exploring different types of sensations on the body. I really like that. And I like that nothing in what you said had anything to do with orgasm directly because I think, and I understand it because it's really fun to get off. And so having that as a goal is great. But if you don't, if you're not super comfortable yet, it's great to just explore whatever feels erogenous to you, whether that's your nipples or if you're really having a lot of shame or embarrassment around masturbation. I even think sensually putting lotion on your body and, and looking at your naked self can be helpful. Exactly. Turn yourself on. You know, find things about your body that look good. And, you know, I, I always encourage women especially to look at their bodies and feel good about it. We tend to judge our bodies a lot or criticize our bodies. But sensual connection with your body can be a great way to really honor your body. And, of course, no goal in mind. You know, masturbation is just about self-pleasure and time to connect with you. And if orgasm happens, great, but it shouldn't be the focus. Right. I remember you saying at Skirt Club that I'm, this isn't a verbatim quote, but you said that orgasm is a side effect of great sex. I love that idea because it's a bonus. It's, it's we can have fun in the process and let yourself be swept away or surprised. And that way you don't feel let down if, if maybe it doesn't happen or happen as quickly as you hope. Exactly. I mean, most people, if they have uh, masturbated as children, it was sort of an accidental pleasure, right? I was exploring this or touching that or rubbing that. And oops, that feels good. And <laughs> it's an exciting uh, surprise. Yes. I just interviewed somebody who had her first orgasmic experience as a kid on the playground and was like, ooh, that's a fun thing to do over there. I had no idea what it was. And I think that's a beautiful, innocent thing that so many of us experience and just didn't know. Exactly. It kind of normalizes that, yes, children, people of all ages are sexual beings, mm -hmm. and it doesn't happen at a certain stage in life. And if we were normalizing it and accepting it, I think it would help a lot with stigma and shame, especially around masturbation. Completely, completely. I asked uh, Dr. Megan Fleming, a clinical therapist out in New York City, greatlifegreatsex.com, to weigh in as well with some of her favorite masturbation tips. I think it's so important to recognize that this is an act of self-love and self-care because the best way to communicate to your partner what you like and gives you pleasure is to know what gives you pleasure yourself. So let's start with always remembering that our biggest sex organ is our mind um, and that arouses both mental and physical. But it certainly starts by, you know, how do we get ourselves turned on and recognizing all the ways that we can proactively and erotically turn ourselves on. And so that might be reading, it may be watching. Um, 
it might be, you know, flipping into your own fantasy or thinking about your hottest sexual experience with a partner. So first tip is, of course, to get your head and your mind in a sexy space and then sort of explore. I'm going to talk about this a lot, but, you know, we know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. And think of it, you know, in terms of if it's a woman in particular, we'd say, you know, is it direct clitoral stimulation? Is it indirect clitoral stimulation? Again, as I said, the biggest sex organs are mine, but the biggest organs are skin. So really taking time to build arousal and not necessarily focusing on orgasm per se, but on the building and the experiencing of pleasure. I love that. It tied so well into what you were saying about it really being a form of self-care and even almost like a primal form of self-care that doesn't take necessarily a lot of time. It doesn't take money. You can, you know, but but really carving out that time and space because I feel like if you are somebody who's very busy and driven and goal-oriented, it would be easy to not have time for yourself, period. And the benefits of carving out time for solo play, I feel, might extend to other areas of your life. Do you find that with clients that once they embrace solo play and, and prioritize it, that the benefits go beyond sex. Oh, absolutely. Because it does uh, act as a form of mindfulness and staying present in your body, which helps you just feel more regulated overall. And I think it also helps with the perfectionism. You know, sometimes I hear that masturbation has to look a certain way or you have to carve out a lot of time, but it can be little bits of time here and there. I usually encourage people to masturbate in the shower. You're already touching your body. It's a great way to... Uh, engage the senses. So it doesn't have to always look the same way. And the more creative we are with self-pleasure, the more we can prioritize it because it doesn't seem like a chore or something we have to do. Similar to how people look at partnered sex. Completely. I like the shower idea a lot too because it's part of a routine already. Right, and, and you're already yeah. touching every part of your body, I hope, as you're <laughs> cleaning yourself. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so it's just a makes the shower more fun. And there's there's noise if you're concerned about that. I know right. some people might be wondering if someone's going to hear, and, um, and, and not everybody minds that. But I do think that it can bring another sense of, of privacy around it. So, yeah, I really like that. And time-saving for those people who are overproductive. <laughs> exactly, multitasking. It's so true. <laughs> so I also got a listener via a voicemail, which, by the way, listeners, y'all can do this too. I have um, an option. You can call in at augustmclaughlin.com forward slash contact, and I will either read or play part of what you share if it's selected for an episode. And I'm going to call this listener Kay. She said this in her message. I'm phoning in because I heard you on Kelsey Derrick's podcast and I started listening to Girl Boner. I don't like to admit this, but I have never gotten off from masturbating. I can orgasm with my partner, but I can't find a way to get there myself. I seem to not be able to just let go. Like I have a block stopping me and I'm wondering if you have tips or ideas. I'd really like to make myself come. Kay, thank you so much for that question. I think Great it's, question. it's an important one, right? Uh, and I relate a bit, again, because I was a late bloomer in this department and I was having orgasms with a partner. Um, so it, it, it came second for me. And whenever I hear questions like this, I always think asking ourselves questions really helps. Journaling or talking things out because I, I believe that m so many answers are within us and we just on some level, have to tap into that. And so some of the questions I jotted down when I was listening were these. What did you learn about sex and masturbation growing up? Um, what is it that your boyfriend and you do during sex that leads to orgasm? And have you ever tried to recreate it? That's literally the first time I made myself come. 
I was acting out essentially partner sex, but without the partner. I used a pillow. Uh, I also wondered if, Kay, you play with yourself with toys or just your fingers because there's no shame in using a toy. I always say, like, when you're first starting, don't use some, like, mega vibrator. (laughs) Exactly. That's going to just, yeah, be too intense or too much too soon. Yeah, I I think so. And but they're but they're fun to use otherwise. Right. Um, And the last thing that occurred to me was I really believe that what we believe about sex and sexuality can become self-fulfilling. So when we believe ourselves, I can't come by myself, which I didn't. So then I didn't. It becomes this sort of loop and we expect it not to happen so that over fixating can be tough. I wonder, Dr. Shannon, when people have these kinds of blocks or in this specific case, how do you figure out what that is and and start making positive change so you can have more pleasure? I think you kind of named one important one. The mind and body are very connected. So when you're creating beliefs like you can't uh, pleasure yourself or get to that place on your own, you're going to evoke an emotion. And that emotion can be the block that's interfering with your pleasure. So I think also there are a lot of beliefs even around partnered sex and masturbation. So if I'm in a relationship, should I be masturbating? Is it the same? I like to teach people that they're two separate activities. We don't want to think of one as a replacement for the other and to think about what is the purpose and tension around masturbation. What do we want that space to be? Is Are you enjoying yourself? I would kind of go into the mindfulness of what she's experiencing. Even if you're not having an orgasm, are you enjoying touching your body? Do you like the experience? Are you setting the mood? I often encourage my clients to set the mood for yourself. Put lighting on. Wear something that you feel good in. Really get out all the things that you'll need in order to have that enjoyable session. So make it an, an event or an experience, not just something you're trying to do really quickly to meet a goal. I really like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. To give yourself that freedom. And then it turns into this sort of fun datey type experience where you're just having an adventure and, um, and, and yeah, kind of being more mindful, as you said, that seems really important. What role could lube play in all this? Because one thing that occurred to me as you were speaking, I was thinking when we are having sex with a partner, a lot of times, well before the orgasm happens, there's so much arousal happening. And we may also use lube from a a container, but we also often produce lube as we're aroused. So I wonder what role lubricant would play perhaps in this experience. Ah, yes. We have so many great lubes out there. And I think lubricant, regardless of whether your body naturally lubricates, should always be on hand for sex because, of course, we can dry out certain positions. It may really help just create a nice uh, comfort during sex. So there's no shame around needing lube. I think I hear that a lot from both individuals and couples. If we need a lube, what does that mean? I kind of think of it as the, you know, the face cream of the vagina. You know, it's, it's moisturizing. It's something that we should get excited about using because it can really help not only with lubrication and barriers to friction, but also moisturizing our tissue. We have to be aware of what we're putting in our bodies. And so a good lubricant goes a long way. And there's great products out there now that can help with pain or enhance sensations. So uh, definitely explore lubricants or you can contact one of us and we'll give you a list of, of good yeah, products to absolutely. use. absolutely. Yeah, I love that you mentioned so many different types. So for somebody who's new for, to lubes mm-hmm. as or purchasing lube, 
what are some of the first things to look for? I know it kind of depends on what your purpose is, but yes. but what might be a good starter one? I always mention clean lube, and by clean I mean uh, avoid chemicals. If you're looking at the back of an ingredients list and you don't recognize the majority of what these ingredients are, they're probably not great for your body. Also, you want to make sure that you are aware of water-based versus silicone-based. They're just different as, as far as how you apply it. So water-based is more absorbent into the skin, so you have to reapply it over time. They're also safer to use with, with toys and also condoms. Silicone-based or oil-based lubricants are a lot thicker. They have a different consistency, and they tend to have a silkier um, texture to them, and they can be great for, for different positions, and without using condoms, they're really helpful. Yeah, and they seem to last longer. They definitely do. They don't absorb into the skin, so they leave a nice silky barrier on the surface of the skin. Yeah, and if you use the water base, you can always reapply, too. Exactly. Right. Reapply and, uh, yeah, explore lube, and you can use lube in so many different ways. You can put it on your devices. You can put it on a partner. You can apply it yourself. So uh, exploring with lube first before going into a partnered experience might be helpful to feel more comfortable with it and know how it feels on your body before yeah. trying it for the first time with a partner. Totally, yes. I, one thing I love about you is that you are – super into myth busting, which is one of my passions. <laughs> yes. It's so fun. So sex toys, what is one of the biggest myths that drives you bonkers with oh, That if you start using a sex toy like a vibrator, you're going to become addicted to it, or you're not going to want partnered sex, or that it, it means something about you. You know, if I have to use a vibrator, it means that I'm not this type of sexual person. And I, I think that those are the biggest myths that I hear that really discourage people from exploring and how toys can really enhance and help. And they're really genderless. You can use a vibrator on anybody. And it, uh, you know, we are in the age of technology with sex toys. So there's so many devices out there. So yeah. there's something for everyone. I truly believe that. Yeah, it's true. And I only learned in recent years that vibrating felt good to people with penises, um, you know, and everybody's just different or different exactly. body parts. The vibrator on your nipple, for example, or, or even on your inner thigh, like places on your body that, that don't get touched as often out in the open can be really really awesome. Do you have a favorite toy or toys that you tend to recommend quite a bit? Uh, you know, I love products by Lalo. I think the engineering of the product, the quality of the product, they're really great. Usually I, I recommend a very simple vibrator, usually a G-spot wand. Uh, Lalo has one called GG2, and it's really great. It has a nice flat surface at the end of it, so you can use it externally on the skin. You can use it on your back, your shoulders, your nipples, any place on the body. But I usually recommend something that can be external and internal. So you have more opportunities to prime your body for different types of sensations. And also, uh, you know, something small. You can start small and obviously improve and move up to different and better devices. Yeah, it provides such a great opportunity to learn about your body and what feels good. I love that you mentioned that. They don't replace a partner because I think no. that that's a really common that if you have a toy, then you must be really not satisfied in bed or um, that somehow there's something going wrong in a relationship, which is completely not the case. And they actually enhance relationships often. 
Absolutely. And it brings up conversations around sex and to talk about how to use it. And what I find with couples is that most partners are willing to use a device if that's something that makes you happy. It's about how to use it. What I find is that there's a lot of questions. What if I don't know how to use a vibrator on my partner? Or, you know, how do I hold it? What do I do? So there's a lot of questions. And even when we go and buy devices, we don't usually get a, an instruction manual, maybe a little bit on how the device works, but not... They're pretty lacking. Yes. I have to say, like, the directions. And and I feel like I kind of know a lot about these things. And I still sometimes, when I'm reading the instructions or trying to go over them, there's not a lot. Sometimes they don't have really much. It's just sort of... It tells you kind of how to turn it on. Exactly. You know what would be great? Like a Kama Sutra book with different positions, but with using (laughs) devices. So you have all the devices and in this position, what device you could use. Yes, it's so true. That would be brilliant. I think that's a great idea. Because, for example, a cock ring. I used to think that the cock ring went over testicles, too, which some do. Some do, right. But a lot of them don't. And... I didn't learn in some horrible way or anything, but I think you could actually hurt somebody by trying to stretch it over the thing that it's not supposed to stretch over or, um, you know, I just think it's good to know some basics. But there are one thing I have found is YouTube is great. Yes. And they aren't usually explicit videos at all. Mm -hmm. They're, They're like a sex educator sitting there or toy reviewer who knows about toys. And they will just say they they will show you how it works in their hands, they're clothed, all of that. So you don't have to, to worry about someone walking in and, you know, there's naked people doing it on your with, – with a demonstration if, if you're at the <laughs> office. But um, but that could be helpful. Just hearing someone talk through it Exactly. Exactly. I've seen some of those videos, too, where they have even anatomy pictures. So, mm-hmm. you know, where on my body should I – use this device or where might be, you know, how to use the vibration. And so uh, I actually have a program in my practice called Vibrator Priming, where Mm. I have women prime their bodies and work with the nervous system within their their pelvic floor to enhance their orgasm response or to reduce pain and discomfort. So I'm all about using devices for sexual health. And that can also be, again, for pleasure as well. But also they have, uh, you know, medical physiological benefits. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So in this program, could you just share an example of one of the tips? Sure. So first we take the anatomy of the vulva and I'll label it, you know, A through E, all the different parts and have them massage lightly with the vibration and actually starting with the lowest intensity. And for a daily regimen, using different massaging techniques with low intensity, different vibrational patterns to awaken the nerve endings, to help blood flow increase into the pelvic area, to also get comfortable with the mind-body connection, being in control of how they're using a vibrator to enhance sensation and pleasure. So it's really great for, you know, priming is basically preparing the body for different types of sexual activity, and Mm -hmm. a vibrator is a great way to get uh, the body primed for sex. That's one of my favorite things to recommend to people who are, they say that they take too long, in their opinion, to get turned on. And that like by the time that sex, when sex is starting, they're not ready for it. Um, Or they want to experience orgasm faster. And there are a lot of different layers to that, right? Because on one hand, having comfort around it taking whatever time it takes is beautiful. But I also really respect that sometimes you don't have a lot of time or you just really want a quickie. And maybe you've been running around and all of a sudden you're like, now's the great time. My vulva has not been communicating with me (laughs) recently. Um, So one thing I love to recommend is 
a little bit of masturbation or maybe inserting a little wearable vibrator mm -hmm. or or a dildo. Like I really love dildos because vibrators for me, I, I like them, but I if they're really intense, I, I prefer to have something like a little bit milder mm -hmm. um, for the most part. And so uh, just something that you can wear or insert a little bit beforehand because then it cues your brain. It's exactly. like your your thoughts then catch up with your body. Exactly. I mean, you brought up a great point, you know, waking your vulva up, really getting your body prepared and primed for, for activity. It also helps your nervous system. So it's going to help you connect with releasing tension and just being able to be more embodied, which will help during partnered sex. And I agree with you. You know, another one of my favorite devices is, is not a non-vibrator. It's, it's Betty Dotson's vaginal barbell. I love Betty Dotson, by the way. <laughs> Happy birthday, Betty. Her birthday, 90th birthday was yesterday. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I got to interview her for my book. And she is just, we talked about uh, blue clits, like blue uh, balls, yes. blue clits. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. She's the mother of masturbation, for anyone who doesn't know. But tell us about this toy. So it's a stainless steel barbell. It uh, has some weight to it, and it has some ridges on it. But what I like about it is as, you're in, as you insert it, you can also use a vibrator externally on your clitoris, and it works your pelvic floor muscles. And the weight of it, I've liked the weight of it because it creates a, a different sensation. So I've always liked it for the pleasure and then also, you know, it's working your pelvic floor. And I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I have endometriosis, which causes a lot of pelvic pain. So something about the weight and the way it engages my pelvic floor really helps reduce pain. So it's it's a great device, but it can be intimidating. When I talk to my clients about a weighted vaginal barbell, they think it's really <laughs> intense, but it's really yeah. not that. It's smaller than what we would think of as a, um, it has a very narrow body, but the weight of it just creates a different sensation. So. I'm really fascinated by this, but the visual in my mind of this barbell just made me laugh. <laughs> I just could picture you're trying to like do your reps or whatever. Um, but that's that's great. And I love that it can be a, a pain relieving device yes. because pain stands in the way of pleasure for so many people. Absolutely. And, and it's a very under talked about thing. And to right. be able to work with your own body and not only feel better, but have that pleasure is, is pretty awesome. Exactly. We can't forget about our pelvic floor. It's yes. definitely something we, we don't want to dismiss as something that we want to work out and condition like any other part of our body. Yeah, absolutely. So you are fond of something that you call designer relationships. Yes. What do you mean by that? Ooh, yes. So I, I think in this day and age, we are in a time where people are designing their relationships to work for them. And what that means is understanding your values in a relationship and designing your partnership to fit those values and also your lifestyle. So it's, it's about kind of letting go of traditions and how we're supposed to do things and being able to, to design something that works for you. And that can be everything from how much time you're spending, how much sex you're having, uh, how you want intimacy to look in a relationship. And I like the idea of that because it puts two individuals in control of their relationship rather than feeling that they're not getting their needs met or that they have to do something a certain way and leaving them both disappointed or unhappy. I think it helps empower couples to find their own way and design something that works for them. That seems really important, as you said, especially now, where there does seem to be more freedom and desire 
to to go away from tradition and and because in the past people have felt that they can't or they were shamed for it and and now there there is more openness at least I think around that and um, it's it's important to not just assume right that someone you meet maybe you live somewhere or grew up or you have very quote unquote like traditional values mm-hmm. you don't know if the person you're meeting does you know it's it's interesting there's um, there's a new dating app called Hashtag Open. Oh, okay. Have I've you heard, heard of that. Those? Yes. Yeah, I met them, uh, the founders at, at Woodhall, the, the Sexual Freedom Summit, and it's wonderful what they created. It's a dating app where it's it's all about designing your own relationships, really, or designing your own encounters. And it's very open to every style of relationship, um, you know, whether you're asexual or polyamorous and I think that's really important because I, I feel like it is – I've heard from numerous people who they're not quite sure, like, are we exclusive? You know, like even like that kind of a basic question. Exactly. Now it's not even just are you exclusive? Are you monogamous? Are you and, – and religion can play a big role. And I know that that's something that you specialize in. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I think the role of religion is that it sets these traditions or expectations around what – for example, a marriage looks like or how intimacy should look in a relationship. And I think as people kind of own their own values and and look at, you know, do I bring those values of my religion into my life? Is it important to me? If it's not, what can I do to find my own path without having that be such a big influence? Because that may have been the only thing that was modeled in their life. This is what marriage looks like or this is what a partner should do. And I take it even further with couples into what are the roles of husband and wife if you're married? Or what are the expectations around sex if you're in a committed monogamous partnership? And I think last year the biggest theme in my practice was open marriages. People looking for avenues for exploration and looking at ways to preserve their primary relationship open and explore. And I think that's such a great thing to see couples doing that and opening up and improving communication so that they can get their needs met and mm, and yeah. kind of break some of those taboos around what it means to be open. Completely. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I received a question just this week about that topic of, of opening up a, a relationship. And the person who wrote to me said she wasn't sure if she was, how did she put it, afraid of intimacy or polyamorous. And she said it, she explained it in a way that she she really values all different types of relationships for different people. She's always been monogamous. But she said that she she feels like she's had this fear of intimacy and she kind of sabotages relationships. And now she has this desire to open up and, and maybe have multiple relationships. And she told me she's feeling lonelier. And it sounded like a really, um, I think she is going to get therapy and I think that's mm-hmm. really important. But because this just came up, I'm curious what what comes to mind for you when you when you I'm sure that she's not the only one having these questions. Oh, it's so common to hear something like that. And you mentioned the word fear. We have so many fears around intimacy because we're we're taught that these are learned behaviors and we are are taught to view things a certain way. But then when we develop who we are and explore that through our relationships and learn different things, it sometimes doesn't uh, make sense or creates confusion. And there can be a lot of shame associated with that. So I would say fear and shame become the biggest barriers 
to getting what you want in a relationship or enjoying the opportunity to explore openly or polyamory. And uh, there's also a fear of what other people will think of you. And that, I I think, can be a very lonely and isolating experience. That's such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I've heard that, too, from friends of mine who are um, non-monogamous. And they've said that they they feel isolated not because they aren't fulfilled by these relationships, but because they don't feel comfortable being open with a lot of people. So where's your community? You know, and and trying to find those, whether it's online spaces or sex-positive communities, so that you do have that because our relationships are not just the relationship, right? It's it's part of our whole social network. Exactly. We need community, especially to normalize new values and, and designing relationships. It, it helps create acceptance and we learn from other couples and it helps understand how to work through things, especially when couples hit a bump in the road or new issues come in like jealousy or something that they weren't expecting. They know how to navigate that by having that community to give them insight. Completely. Yeah, very well said. I'm curious about um, definitions of monogamy. I feel like that also has shifted some. And in a way that there is more, I don't know if leeway is the right word, but it's just not the former conventional idea of monogamy means you are always only with this person intimately, physically, sexually, like all of your intimacy is with one person. Sometimes it would be, um, I'm trying to think of different, actually my first year of Girl Boner, there was somebody who her partner felt that porn was cheating. Mm. And um, and I know that a lot of people, I've heard different conversations about this and when there'll be like a headline, like someone saw porn and then they ended the wedding or whatever. Um, I have so much compassion for those people yes. <laughs> because I know what it's like to feel very threatened by porn mm-hmm. because I grew up feeling very threatened by it. I thought it was, I learned it was, it was really evil. I was threatened by how sexy it was when I thought I was not sexy. Like I get that. Um, and if that's your value system, I mean, it, it kind of edges on one of those things where it's a value, but it's also social conditioning. Right. Yes. So like I yes. had to learn more and now I don't see porn the same way as I used to. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we should shame a person for having a belief that is just, it's just what you learned. Exactly. And we never own our partner's sexuality. And I think that's also a social condition that we learn that we have to be the one and only, the only source. I hear this a lot, even with fantasy. You know, I want you to only fantasize about me. And that's just not how we're wired as sexual beings. You know, fantasy is a vehicle for us to to be creative and enjoy our sexuality. And Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be about ownership or these ideas of uh, controlling your partner's sexuality. Right. And, and I think a lot of that is taught. And especially I think about us women, we're taught the fairy tales about <laughs> love and romance. The one. <laughs> Prince Charming and yeah. you know, the, um, what, you're the object of someone's affection. And I think all of that is something we can let go of and, and realize that a lot of that's narrative and storytelling that doesn't have to apply to our lives and yeah. we need to start telling new stories. And you know what I think is really helpful? If you are somebody who feels threatened by your partner's fantasies mm-hmm. in a way that you do end up inadvertently, but you're kind of trying to control them. Because again, I also relate to that. Like in early on in my journey, if if my partner had said he was fantasizing about some other person, I would have probably felt horrified when I was like 18, 19, 20. Um, 
But I think that the anecdote for that was I had to give myself permission to fantasize. I had never done that. And I remember when I finally did, and it was because I was single. So then I, I could give myself permission. And it was watching Allie McBeal. Do you remember Allie I McBeal? do. What a great show. <laughs> do you remember the car wash scene? I do. Um, I was living in New York, and I walked in, and my roommates, were all, we were all watching it, like, drooling. It was so, I mean, just, we were, whoa. And I could not stop thinking about it. And I didn't even realize how many blocks I had around my own. Like, I thought I wasn't allowed to fantasize about other people who I was not dating and going to marry and have children with that I didn't want. <laughs> you know, I hear that so much in my practice. Yeah. People saying, I don't know how to fantasize or I've never been given permission to fantasize. And it can be so, become such rich work to be able to allow yourself to go into the world of fantasy. You know, fantasy doesn't necessarily mean that I want to act something out. It becomes a way to connect with our eroticism and uh, it can be as bizarre as you want it to be. And it has nothing to do with what you want to act out, but more about what charge it gives you and the energy it produces. And yeah. that you can bring that into your sex life with a partner. Completely, which is the important thing. And I think when you allow it yourself, then you know that it's completely different from building intimacy with a person to actually just have these thoughts. Like, uh, Dr. Megan has said in the past, you might fantasize about robbing a bank because you want money, but you're not going to do it. I mean, exactly. most people are not going to do it. So, yeah, I think that's really important. What What do you recommend for people who hear these kinds of things? They're like, yeah, I love this idea of not feeling threatened by this and by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they feel like that's very daunting. A lot of it's communication because even back to the porn piece is that if it's a secret or if it's a behavior that you haven't talked about with a partner, which I see with many couples, Mm -hmm. then it becomes more of a betrayal that you're hiding something from me. But if we can open up and share, and remember porn is just entertainment, and we can talk about it and, and talk about why it's something that someone enjoys and maybe exploring it together. There's so many different ways to experience porn. There's categories and different types. So I think the communication piece, being able to talk about it, and that's usually where I see people in sex therapy. There's been a discovery or something has happened, and they just need a space to talk about it and someone to be able to be uh, helpful in that communication. You know, what are the things that are coming up? What are your thoughts about porn? There may have been an early experience that someone had that's created shame or discomfort around porn. And so talking about that and processing it may help open up mm-hmm. to understanding how it can be helpful in your relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's really big. Communication seems to be such a, a huge piece of all of this. Right. Um, Sexual communication is kind of a third language. I always tell people it's its own language. It has its own terms. And we never really learn how to talk about sex Mm -hmm. until we're having to do it. So I kind of normalize that it's the most imperfect form of communication. Let it be messy. And it doesn't have to always, you know, having the right words and knowing how to explain it. Just let it be. And allowing yourself to do that with a partner or even if you're single talking to friends or other people about it i've seen so much shame be healed just by talking about sex mm, yeah let it be messy that's yes. that's huge isn't it yes because the 
it can build up in your mind if you're trying to get ready to talk about something and you're thinking this is going to be so scary. And then if you just let yourself stumble and even maybe say, this is hard for me to talk about. It's going to come out really wonky. But here you go. I want to do this with you or whatever. Or show right. them something you want to do on in erotica or right. whatever I it is. I watch this porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. You were like confessing. <laughs> That's so funny. What has your work taught you most about about your own sexuality that's maybe been um, surprising because it sounds like there's been a huge uh, learning curve and evolution right. for you from right. growing up Catholic to where you are now. I think that, uh, you know, sexuality is much more than what we do with our bodies and that sexuality is so much a part of our spirituality, who we are at our core, our purpose in life. And it's taught me that sex is everywhere and that we can't ignore sexuality in our life. And I think growing up in a religious family, a conservative culture, it was this thing that no one talked about and they ignored, but you knew everyone was doing it and you knew that it was a big part of life. So I think that I've learned that in my life is that sexuality is everywhere and I want people to learn that sex is much more and activities, but it's it's who you are and how you experience your life. And how we do things in life is how we do things sexually. So that's kind of what I've learned through the process is that I myself as an individual have to make sure I'm evolving sexually and taking care of my sex life. Even though I'm talking about sex every day with my clients, it's something that I want to make sure I prioritize and that I walk the walk and talk the talk and make sure I'm uh, you know taking care of my sexual health as well. Absolutely. What can you share about your areas of expertise if somebody mm -hmm. did want to potentially work with you? Sure. Um, what are the things that you primarily specialize in? Yes. So I work with uh, conservative cultures and religious groups that are looking for sex ed and sex coaching. And that can be everything from learning how things work to intimacy skill building. I also love working with women around sexual health concerns. So this can be women that are having difficulty with orgasm, arousal issues, hormone imbalances, endometriosis, pelvic pain. I love working with those concerns because there are so many things we can do in therapy that can really help and I also have an integrated model. So professionals that I work with, like a pelvic floor physical therapist or GYN specialist. So uh, any sexual concerns for women, definitely consider sex therapy. Yeah, it's really powerful, isn't it? And, and again, it's not just about sex. I've heard from multiple sex therapists have told me that people ex were scared to come in because they thought it was going to be I have to go in and like have sex or it's going to be right. there there are a lot of misperceptions around oh, it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean there's so many things that people learn about themselves through sex therapy that have nothing to do with sex, just who they are, yeah. maybe passions or career changes or I always get my clients creatively exploring. So even if it's not about sex, I may have them go to a belly dance class or painting or things that get them recharging their libido through creative mm -hmm. outlets because that's a form of expression that I think is connected to our sexuality. Completely. It it fascinates me how often sexual issues have almost nothing to do with sex. Yes. They involve sex, but or maybe that's where the it's what's leading you to get help. Mm -hmm. But usually there's something else going on. And then on the flip side, how important everything else in your life is to your sexuality. As you were saying, that expression, if you can, sometimes if you can't express yourself sexually, you're probably or perhaps not able to express yourself in your creativity or some kind of passion that you've been longing for. Um, so I think it's really beautiful when somebody does go in to see someone like you and 
they think that maybe they will end up having more orgasms, which is beautiful and wonderful in itself, but that they then go, oh my gosh, there's this whole other rich part of me and and how that might impact the rest of my life and my existence. Exactly. I mean, I've seen orgasms cure writer's block, uh, <laughs> help people who are, you know, trying to get a promotion at work. Just really engaging your sexuality can help uh, assertiveness and empowerment. It, it's amazing what harnessing that energy can do. I mean, sex is kind of magic if you think about it. It is. It, it really is. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This is a great talk. I'm hoping your listeners get some good gems from this. Tell people where they can learn more about you. So you can find me on social media at Dr. Shannon Chavez or my website, drshannonchavez.com, where you can see articles and things that I've written, all, all things sexuality. And you have a great Instagram. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I have to say. There's a lot of funny little things on there. I try to bring some normalcy and humor to sex. Yes, which it should have, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe if you haven't. And you can sign up for occasional extras, um, free gifts and discounts and news about events and stuff at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 